Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. The British Romantic poet William Wordsworth lived from 1770 to 1850. He can be credited with inventing what we consider today autobiography, to talk about ourselves, to think about who we are, and to be deep in our feelings. I spoke with poet Maureen McLean, herself the author of five books of poetry and also a critic, about Wordsworth and whether recollecting the past can really give us a feeling as if we're reliving those moments of ecstasy and disappointment yet again. I also want to ask you something, since you are part of the community of people who listen to this show, think about it. I don't make money off the show. I don't have fancy sponsors. I don't sell you mattresses or makeup or anything else, but you could do me a favor. To be connected to the community, you could review the show on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or on YouTube. Just click on it, give it a rating, because that makes it easier for other people to find it. And that is my point, to reach more people and to connect more people who care about big ideas, the ideas that shape and sustain our democracy, and who care about and love great books. Thanks for considering doing that. I'd really appreciate it. So we'll start. So hi, Maureen. Hi, Lee. I'm so happy to have you on Think About It today and to talk about Wordsworth. Glad to be here. So, so you know, I have been rereading Wordsworth, who's known to us as one of the great British Romantic poets. One of the poets most school kids are kind of afflicted by. <laughs> have to read the daffodils and not incomprehendingly sit there and think, what is this about and why is he such an important figure? Right. So I thought I'd read um, a few lines from one of your poems from this beautiful book, Mrs. N, the serial. And there's a Wordsworth passage in here. You have a couple of Wordsworth passages, yeah. I think, that are more hidden or tucked away or kind exactly. of secreted. Um, and I'll start reading this to you so you'll hear your own words. Right. Wordsworth never took a plane. But Ms. N takes a plane with Wordsworth on her mind and other matters, love, fear, a wish to die. Wordsworth had a very sturdy mind and legs that took him far into the mountains, Scottish glens, German towns, and yes, across the Alps. Ms. N has never seen the Alps nor Snowdon nor mountain anywhere beyond the ancient Adirondacks. Wordsworth too, she thinks, would like their worn down humps, their pathless woods, their rowboats by the shores, of placid lakes ready for exploring. Young Wordsworth stole a rowboat, rowed out on a lake one night and found himself appalled. The mountain strode sublime after him and he trembled in his mind as Burke had said it would before sublimity near failed. There are passages in life in Wordsworth he called spots of time. And Ms. N has some spots she sometimes recollects, but now she's happy and credulous in love and in strange anguish wants to recollect nothing. If it were now to die, twere now to be most happy, she murmurs with the engine nearly exploding with the fragility and perverse strength of all that lives and moves and has its being in the air, on the ground, in the sea. Having reached a floating state of grace, surprised by joy, she wants to die. Life can only get worse, the mountain receding below them as they climb. So I love this passage for a very specific reason. What I found in this passage is this engagement with Wordsworth, where this idea of spots of time or recollection or going back to a, a memory of childhood or an experience where you're so filled with 
the ecstasy of being alive and being part of your surroundings and actually drinking them in or they're traversing you, that Wordsworth becomes the power to recollect. And I kind of want to ask you about that. You recollect in the, in the big poems, Tintern Abbey, the Ode, or the Prelude, you recollect and you gain something. There's abundant recompense for recollecting your childhood immediacy. In this poem, you take this turn and you say, but now she's happy and credulous in love and in strange anguish wants to recollect nothing. And I thought this is a great way of going into Wordsworth, who proposes to us recollecting can resurrect this memory in us. As you said, there's a lot of uh, Wordsworth both named in this passage and a lot of Wordsworth thinking about childhood and memory and composition and self-composition and that has definitely traversed me and has become part of what? The logic of my mind. And he's so interesting and significant, certainly in the history of, of poetries in English, for how much philosophical and poetic time he gave both to childhood, but also to first impressions and immediacy in general. So that is one aspect of what uh, he honors often in the work. But what's also there always is this second order sense of what comes back to the adult or what is drawn upon in that moment of these memories or recollections that, as he puts it, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the breath of solitude. So these things that spontaneously come back to us. And you know, he says somewhere in his preface to Lyrical Ballads, his first, in a way, big book, and he has a line about, he says, well, of course, poetry is a spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. And most people might still think like, yeah, poetry, you know, I'm moved, right. I want to, poetry right. is about self-expression, spontaneous overflow, but he does this other thing and that's the Wordsworthian pivot. He says, yes, poetry is a spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings recollected in tranquility. Right. So, so there's always that, um, for him, second beat, which is poetry may present itself to you, a reader, as if it were the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, but from Wordsworth's perspective, it's something that has been composed, uh, recollected, recomposed, written down. He actually often wrote while walking. So it's interesting to think about that, these sort of rhythms of walking and, and what, what came back to him. He has an extremely interesting theory of, of mind and composition and, and people as almost, you might almost say archeological or geologic layers, but that would be too static an image because one almost feels that what happens is we are suddenly shot through with with feeling, illumination, memory, image, and these things become, as he as he says elsewhere, you know, I think life and food for future years. Right. So they fructify us, or something you said. They nourish. They nourish us, and and whether or not you agree with this, which I think is a highly arguable theory, I would say. It's, it's fascinating in terms of the dignity it gives to childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating in terms of a, its being a theory of mind and how the mind is recursive. They might be 60 and feel themselves just as they were when they were four or, you know, and, and these sort of layers that might suddenly flash upon us and in us. So that, that's something that I take seriously in Wordsworth. And that the other thing that, or another thing that's really significant about him 
for me and for many people is that he writes this autobiographical epic. You know, it's probably the first autobiographical epic in verse in English, and it's... So break this, this is the prelude. It's story. about his, himself, it's about his life story. It goes back to very early, pre-verbal. Absolutely, and what it was to be, you know, a small boy in the Lake District in England and, you know, stealing a rowboat and... But, but even before that, at his mother's breast, yes. there's this kind of amazing recollection exactly. of things that are pre-verbal, maybe, pre-symbolic. And when you say it's one of the first autobiographical epics, yeah. in some ways, how does this happen? If someone could start thinking about himself in this way as material for poetry, and until then, what had people written about? I mean, it is. I was thinking about it walking over here. There's a way in which he's such a kind of official institutional poet, particularly in Britain, but probably in the U.S., he still shows up in syllabi. And, oh, yeah. and even if people don't read Wordsworth, they've heard of Wordsworth, and one of the things, I mean, he definitely has an incredibly boring, serious aura. His own contemporaries said that about him, too. I think that's part of the, as it were, problem of Wordsworth. Right. But what's, what's amazing is that for all of his high seriousness, he's also a poet of joy. But that's what I kind yeah. of find interesting. You yeah. said he's serious. He is an institution because yeah. he is the first poet to do something for us, which is for us meaning he gives us ourselves as material for reflection in his, and reflection to to cover everything we've become, to go back to who we were, to know who we are today and reflecting. So this epic unfolds as the story of his mind and of his life. Which is a deeply, deeply weird project in 1800. You know, right. For us now, I mean, if most people think That's about... all we do, actually. Right. That's if most people now do. think of, oh, if you say to somebody you're a poet, they assume that you're writing about your personal experience. I actually think when people say, who are you, they say, where'd you grow up? Who are your parents? What do you do? What do you, what do you do? remember? Yeah. What do you do in New York and where yeah. do you live? That's yeah, New exactly. York. <laughs> but actually that we make sense of ourselves co comprehensively, reaching back into childhood saying, I had this experience, therefore I am that right. today. This has become the mode of how we think about ourselves. And it's probably no accident that, say, post-psychoanalysis, somebody like Wordsworth, I mean, that, that turn to the child and the family and these significant early events that the way they might resonate throughout one's life, he becomes an ongoing kind of resource. Was for, this not yeah. um, a kind of commonplace around 1800 that people no. thought your childhood experience may determine how you behave today? And also there was just a much stronger class determination, particularly in Britain. I mean, the, the sense that uh, you would dilate hundreds and hundreds of lines, thousands of lines on childhood experience would seem self-indulgent and ludicrous. And it, it's not an accident that Wordsworth did not publish the prelude in his lifetime. It's a posthumous thing. And what he was most famous in his lifetime for poems like uh, his poems, Lyrical Ballads, these in these short lyrics, which are often extremely beautiful, but there are also a number of poems that are about social life and meeting right. peasants on the road or right. meeting old rustics. And right. that part of Wordsworth gets forgotten because people tend to think of Wordsworth as the poet of what Keats said, the egotistical sublime. He's Mr. Ego, you know. And right. in the U.S., we have Whitman, who's our Mr. Ego. So right. it's right. so it's an interesting comparison. But to think of the, in a way, the originality of the task words were set himself, you know, he, throughout this poem, The Prelude, that comes to be known as The Prelude, he's modeling himself on Milton. And if you think Milton wrote an epic on, you know, to justify the ways of God to man, this is a striking, peculiar, and deeply modern turn, right? A, this sort of inward turn that Wordsworth is part of. Right. And in a certain key, you see this with some of his contemporaries. I mean, Byron writes long poems. But that sense of really taking personal experience seriously and philosophically, and also that 
whatever the specifics of your experience are, they could be generalized. You could say, as some contemporaries did, he was a crazily uh, self-absorbed person and how can you devote a poetry to this? You could also say that he understood his childhood as allegorical material that anybody would have an analogous childhood and could think about their lives in a certain way. And when you said earlier he starts um, in feeling, which I found really interesting, that yeah. sort of actually it originates in feeling. It goes to this other part, yeah. you said in Lyrical Ballads, where he's very connected to other people. And yes. a lot of it is how to connect with other people, Definitely. sort of how to hear this still sad song of humanity. There's this other part. The other part, but at the same time, the Wordsworth we've received is a somewhat staid Absolutely. and formal person Hyper-regulated. Um, which he isn't actually once, yeah. you've, once you read it. He actually yeah. isn't. It's like most poets who become canonized, they sort of get put into a space and they say they do something right. for the... Right, become a monument. Yeah. As if the tradition really just absorbs them in, in a kind of... They, they're, they're put in a box and there they are. But yes. the feeling part is really interesting that you said his childhood can become a model for other people how to think about their childhood. Right. But it's not... They're, they're not going to have the same experiences. Right. They're not kind of the same feelings, but how to even make sense of a feeling you once had and you're looking back at it, which is what I like this um, in your poem here in this book, that you kind of set this up and you're kind of rowing with Wordsworth out into the lake and there's a kind of sublimity in their passages in life. And then you say, but now she's happy, incredulous in love. And I like something in this, in this line, she's happy, incredulous in love. There's no line break because the happiness is something she can't understand. It says an incredulity about happiness, about feeling, which I think Wordsworth keeps on bringing us back to a feeling and says, this is the feeling I was in. Yeah. Now I can look back at it. And it's not progress. It's not chronology. It's not psychoanalysis, which tries to unlock the mysteries of childhood and say, right. this is the key to us. Right. It says, there's that feeling. This is what I felt. Here I am now. So psychoanalysis will do something very different yes. with childhood memory, yes. which are mostly locked in some kind of... Right, and there's almost, as it were, the kind of, you know, detective, yeah. you know, novel logic. You know, Wordsworth is up to something else. You know, his sense, too, that poetry in any art begins in the uh, sensations of the body and the feelings of the body. And, and he, he's, by reputation, he's the least the least sexy of poets, right? He's the most, he's not Shelley, he's not Byron, he's not Keats. You know, no one's going to go make a biopic. I mean, it would be, it would be interesting to see a we biopic of, of, of Shelley, you know, right? yeah. So he's, he doesn't, uh, and, and. So Coleridge is incredibly charismatic. Exactly. Are, yeah. What's Keats' no. attraction for the world? <laughs> well, I mean, he's, he's A, young. He's, young, he's young, and he writes these beautiful winning letters, and you just feel right. the, the force of this unbelievably lovely, funny, smart, uh, brilliant young man making himself, making him, you know, himself in language and in right, friendship. Right, right. And, and, you know, Wordsworth has a different sensibility. And in a way, one, one often wants to read Wordsworth against Wordsworth, Wordsworth against his reception, because the reception is so like, oh my God, Wordsworth. And the fact is, that's partly a deserved reputation, but I also think there are just extraordinary passages, particularly in the first 10 years of his publishing life between, say, 1797 and 1807. People talk about the miraculous decade when he really kind of came into his own. The story of Wordsworth is so much a story of kindling friendship. He meets Coleridge. They're, you know, literally exchanging stanzas, right. composing together as they're walking through, you know, the hills and also with Dorothy, right. you know, so there's, there's this community uh, this powerful young community of young radicals who are sympathetic to, 
the recently disastrously concluded French Revolution. But, but this is an important aspect in the prelude. The Huge. revolution, which is the hope Absolutely. of Europe, exactly. they are in favor of yeah. it, then their hopes are dashed, but they somehow carry on. And, and Wordsworth is a little, you know, he's, he's, he's a tricky one politically, depending on what your persuasions are. I mean, he has two books in the prelude devoted to what he calls residence in France. He's over in France, right. you know, and he hears about, you know, the death of Robespierre, and he, he's being taken around, actually, by a royalist officer, and is going there as a young Englishman who felt the brotherhood of man. And he was completely uh, endorsing, you know, fraternité, liberté, égalité. These were the virtues he, too, was espousing as a young man. Now, he came to have a much more cautious relation <laughs> to radicalism. So, so, I mean, so in a way, Wordsworth becomes this, for a lot of readers who go deep into Wordsworth, he becomes a kind of figure of disappointing liberalism. <laughs> he becomes a figure sort of avant la lettre of a kind of neoconservative turn. You know, um, Shelley called him uh, a turncoat. You know, he becomes a figure for his own younger and contemporaries. Shelley so younger. And we, Shelley we dies very no young. What Shelley would have exactly. I mean, Shelley, I think, is 29. A, of course, right. there's a great romance in anybody who was a Who dies young, exactly. But there's something, yeah. as you said, there's a kind of physical dimension in Wordsworth, which has to be glossed over for this story to really work. Yes. It's very interesting. It's very physical. Even yeah. e And all of his memories are usually physical. He retrieves them. Or, right. Or right. He's rowing them. a boat. You get many, many passages of walking. As you said, you get this fascinating image of the babe suckling. He's also a really interesting open-air poet. <laughs> There's a lot of, you know, I mean, the, the prelude begins, oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze, right? So this idea, that it's a poetry of the outdoors. And there's a reason why he has been significant for people who are interested in environmental readings and ecological readings of romanticism, both because of the richness of the work and because of 200 plus years of reception. You know, if I'm talking about him with students or with friends or with myself, I kind of want to reactivate the feeling sensing Wordsworth. But I felt like yeah. what you activated yeah. in this one passage, which is an obvious one because yeah. it mentions Wordsworth and what took a plane, what you wanted to activate is this duality, not a ten maybe yes. it's tension, but productive tension, yeah. that there is, we want to be in the moment, and we also look back at every moment. And of course, all poetry is always, exactly. it always tries to grasp the moment, but Wordsworth has a way of doing that without this kind of melancholic loss. We once yes. lived fully, but now I look back at yes. this and I'm, I re, you know, I'm no longer young. Or the kind of ecstatic, I'm gonna lose myself to the moment and try to recreate it in the poem and end up giving you what Jeffrey Hartman, one of my teachers called a kind of false immediacy. Yes. And so he's constantly dealing with mediation that I can't get to my own yes. experience, of course, because the mind intervenes yes. and language intervenes, but it's not a problem in a way. So I thought yeah. you activated this part to say, yeah, there's tension, but this tension can be opened up rather than we have to resolve it for, for either the past ec yes. ecstatic memory, I mean, the experience and today's memory of it. I think that that is just really astute. And I think that that is the kind of thing that he dramatizes again and again in some of the big famous poems, like the Ode Intimations on Immortality, uh, where that sense of the joys of childhood, they may have fallen away partly through education, partly through just the accretion experience, but he transforms that. It isn't this sort of tragedy, melancholy of adulthood. It is a higher order pleasure. He wants to give it to us as a simultaneity. This was my big question reading yeah. this week. So in the Intimations Ode, in Tintern Abbey, there's a first pass, they're different, so the structures are different. So in the Ode, there's four stanzas where he is this child, everything was given to him. Right. He was able to experience the world. And then 
he didn't write the next part for quite a long time, right? There's a couple of years break, and then the next part, like, we are kind of asleep to the world right. in this kind of platonic way. We're in a cave. We'll never get access to the world again. And how, this is what I was trying to figure out, and that's what I really wanted to ask you. Is that satisfying to say there is this abundant recompense in older age where we look back at our childhood or our youthful kind of ecstasies? Because there seems to be some openness to this. Yeah. In Tintern Abbey also, he says, I look back on this. I was here five years ago. Now I look again at the banks of the Y, and it sort of gives me what I couldn't have gotten because now my mind has grown and matured. I mean, you know, do I think Wordsworth's sense of compensations is satisfying? Not 100%. Do I think that he is a kind of genius of dramatizing the, the movements of self and mind and time? And that sense, the intimations ode begins, there was a time when the earth and every common scene to me did seem appareled in celestial light. The vision and the glory of a dream. I'm kind of dragging various phrases. So you get this vision, and then he says, it is not now as it hath been of yore. So uh, the thing I'm really interested in him, too, is the way his poems hold time. You know, so it's a sort of like self-diagnostic moment. There was a time, it is not now as it hath been of yore. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither has it been? You know, the glory and the dream. Where is it now? The glory and the dream. And that sense of uh, disappointed hopes, things that have come crashing down upon you in adulthood, whether you understand that as failures of relationships, the failures of the French Revolution. And then he does this move, and how one thinks about this move probably has to do with our own temperaments. He, as you said, he put aside the poem after the initial four stanzas where he got to this crux, whither has gone the glory and the dream, whether has gone all of those upsurges of joy and that capacity for rich and positive feeling, it sits. It sits for a couple of years. And when he returns, he returns to this more general myth of our birth is uh, but a sleep and a forgetting. The idea of, you know, all of us pre-exist our birth and come into the world. And, and in a way, this is where you could see is a kind of, exactly. And that, and that in, there's a kind of fascinating way in which the, the babe, the baby, the baby itself is coming with all of this capacity for the new, with all of this, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's secularizing a lot of, of Christian um, mm-hmm. uh, aura, but that sense of um, this myth, right, that kind of blissful holiness that babies are born with, they, it starts to dim, and yet we still have access to it when we hear the mighty waters of the sea, when we suddenly, you know, come upon a field, maybe for some of us, it would be when we saw an astonishing skyscraper, right? What would it be that would kind of reconnect us with this imminence? Well, in, in your poem, it's very clear. Yeah. You say no. You don't say there's a, but ha- now she's happy and credulous in love. You're not seeing a skyscraper, I think. Right. In yeah, this I mean, poem, no, it's love. I mean, it's, it's another not, person. Right. It's actually what's interesting, yeah. what you said earlier, yeah. when Wordsworth connects with people. Yes. There is something there. So the question of, is there enough recompense? So he says in, in this ode, O joy that in our embers is something that doth live. Something in us, as it were, knows more than what we know when we mature and gain knowledge. And then I, I, I... That's a wonderful and, you know, very Wordsworthian formula. But it's unclear that we know more because it's in our embers and we have to kindle it. And the poem kind of kindles it or fans the, this flame. Yeah. It's, not, it's in, in our embers. It's not a flame, really. And I read the, what you described earlier in the first, first four stanzas, and then our birth is by the slumber, 
that it's also a story of what the Enlightenment gives us. Yes. Whether knowledge will actually liberate us and make us free, which is Freud's big question about civilization. He said, we end up less happy. How right. strange is that? And actually, right. Wordsworth doesn't settle there. He says, actually, what we learn that something in us can be activated. This capacity, and there's this enormous capacity in him when, when you go when the, in the poems, they go from this young, younger to older age. In older age, he has this amazing capacity for joy. He does this interesting thing, this sort of transvaluation of what you might have thought was a disappointment. So towards the end right. of the Intimations Ode, he says, you know, not for these early wonderful things do I raise thoughts, you know, thanksgiving and praise, but for those blank misgivings, for all the obstacles that we face as sentient beings when we are adults. I want to praise those things, he says. Now, whether I think okay, that's the way to go. You, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, um, I mean, I think there's a, there's a kind of power. Well, one, to go back to your earlier question, I think that the category of happiness isn't one that necessarily resonates with him as much. He does write a lot about pleasure. But when Wordsworth writes about pleasure, it often doesn't sound so much like pleasure. <laughs> but he also does talk about, quote, a wise passiveness and a kind of wisdom. So again, I think that, you know, Wordsworth is carrying some heavy water or doing some heavy lifting on behalf of the complexity of human development and wanting to keep alive, as you said, a duality or a productive tension between immediacy and overwhelming force of passions, whether they be sexual passions or anger or joy or, uh, and, yeah, political passions, absolutely. Passion. Which he, as you said, yeah. he's already disillusioned and he still writes about a revolution as the greatest moment. That, yes. But he already knows it's not going to work out the way he wanted it to work out. So he does this very interesting thing where he never fully disavows and yet he slightly contains. And, that, and it's an interesting way to think about also meter, that it's meter as a measuring, right. you know, and right. that there's a fascinating way in which there is this both and quality all the time with Wordsworth, both in terms of what the, the, the content of the poems, but also the actual form of the poems, right. you know. So, I think he's very interesting to think with because he keeps alive a complexity that often, you know, either say psychoanalysis might pathologize certain things or think or want us, his notion of being disabused is different, I believe, from a notion of a, of a psychoanalytic notion of being disabused. What's the notion of being disabused in psychoanalysis? That knowledge is actually, you know, not an unproblematic liberation, right? right? I mean, the future of an illusion, right? right. You know, the enlightenment, you know, creates its own structures right. of illusion. Right. and. And I do think um, there's something incredibly moving if you read, uh, say, Wordsworth's essays on epitaphs. Yeah. I mean, people really struggling to think about the afterlife, really struggling to think about the relationship among generations, right. really trying to think about futurity. I also think, and this is something that can kind of fall by, by the boards, but Wordsworth is committed, at least in theory, to the notion of a poetry of, quote, common life and a poetry in common language. He writes powerfully against poetic diction, against highfalutin, you know, language. And so while he might sound to contemporary American ears, for example, uh, formal and a little stuffy, he actually is writing what in that period would have been uh, a kind of regularized literary standard English, a kind of common idiom. So what would he sound like in American English today? I mean, it's an interesting thing because I actually think there's an argument to I be made about Wordsworth to Whitman, not in the sense of influence, but in the sense of, of it, if, right. if democratic modernity means art should be able to carry the experiences and the hopes and the, the common language of a community, then I think there's something 
you know, Wordsworth doesn't always do it, but that's what he says poetry should be doing. You know, because he has this idea of the poet as both special and typical. So he, he talks, he says, uh, the work of poetry is a man speaking to men. It's not a higher inspired Vatic. He's like, the poet is a man speaking so to not, men. So it's not the Vatic role of no. the, pro, the prophetic. Even though you do get scenes of that in his work, you do get, he's, but it's a really powerful democratic gauntlet he throws down that a poet is a man speaking, of course it's hypergendered, right? A man speaking to men. But if you, if you polemically universalize that, I think, you know, there's a lot in common with a Whitmanian I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume, and that reciprocity. Now, Wordsworth goes on to say, too, that the poet is like any other person. We have the same bodies, the same sensoria, but the poet has a more than usual organic sensi sensibility. So he wants to say the poet is both like everyone else and yet has slightly more uh, vibrating nerve endings. When you yeah, bring up so. Whitman, I want to ask you something. So um, Whitman also sings America into existence as this kind of polyglot, multi-vocal, yeah. diverse place to a point, right? Yeah. Wordsworth is both a very, very British poet, but at the very same time, English. what you just English, English. okay, sorry, what you just okay, sorry, all right, what no, you. Although he does talk a lot about Britain and Britannia. Okay, so English. Talk about but what you just described is actually that he's opening up poetry to a more general humanity 100%. because it's not classed because he looks at beggars and vagrants yeah. he, in the in, in book seven of the prelude he's in the city it's this overwhelming canvas of humanity really interestingly super global and diverse it's kind of it's actually like one of uh, Rilke's elegies where he goes to the circus and there's all the attractions and it's kind of a circus and yeah. But this idea that he's opening up to a more generalized humanity versus to an English humanity. Because I wonder whether he's, because, you know, American school kids have to read daffodils, and not only Americans, people in Jamaica, people in oh, India. Exactly. And I've you always know that talked to people. something with a Jamaica Kincaid. Absolutely. He's talking he said, about, you know, the, you know, basically, what the fuck is a daffodil? The right? daffodils you know, or never, the, the winter, never, like, you know, we don't knock have the last autumnal flowers of our climate. The last autumnal crocus down, and I thought, oh, it must become winter now because there's some type of crocus that blooms in the fall. So she said, I was taught and I knew more about the daffodils than any British kid, but I wasn't in England. So the climate didn't quite work. So is it a more universal general humanity he's talking to? Or is it the one that you want to stay, stay, you want to stay in Cambridge and book, is it book two of the prelude? Exactly. You know? right. I would maybe slightly reformulate the question, which is what he says poetry should do or his hopes for poetry yeah. is that it might be universalizable. Yeah. Or, you know, to, as he says elsewhere, to extend the domain of human sympathy, right? And that, okay. so he talks a lot about, you know, humans and common life. In actuality, of course, he's drawing on a very particular national, class, hierarchized landscape and experience. I think that is a diagnostic tension. I don't think that, I think that tells us a lot more about the complexities of modernity than it does about whether Wordsworth should be kind of thrown off the bus or not. Well, I'm also, <laughs> yeah, so, but so I'm also interested it, yeah. when you said there's the specific and then the general. Yeah. Would there be any poetry that is not rooted in the particularity of the speaking subject? Because well, exactly. Wordsworth give us, yeah. gives us poetry about himself, right? right? So those ratios this. would be, I would say, different in a poet 
uh, who, who traffics more in abstraction. Yeah. I mean, again, there's, there's never not going to be that, that, right. that oscillation. But if, if one thinks about somebody, say, like Wallace Stevens or Fernando, you know, Pessoa or so, right. with uh, the fact that, um, you know, this is, this is another interesting aspect about Wordsworth, that he says the language of poetry should be no different from the language of prose. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. sense that um, so, uh, the long poem, the prelude, the long autobiographical epic, it's full of narrative and stories. Right. And, it's, and, and it shares a lot of commitments uh, with a realist novel. I was walking down this path. I was at, I was in Paris at this time. I heard the death of, about the death of Robespierre. I mean, you can date, you can place. There are real correlates. Whereas, and, and Whitman again also has um, uh, social location and um, some specific correlates. But uh, but Wordsworth has a lot in the Prelude. He has a lot of specific sites and locales. Although they do get quite generalized in some of the odes. You know, the supposedly higher genres. So right. in the Immortality Ode. You know, he says, there was, there, there was a tree of many one, a field that I have looked upon. Both speak to me of something that is gone. Where's that tree? Where's that field? You know, he doesn't say there was an oak tree in uh, Windermere. This was a very interesting thing about what feels hyper-specific and, and, and what, what feels more generalized. That sense of how Wordsworth travels or doesn't, and also how he was made to travel as part of an imperial curriculum is Fascinating. And even what you just said, the line, there was a tree of many one, quintessential outrageous gesture of poetry to posit something in the mind and say there was a tree <laughs> of many one, there yeah. was a field. Tall and, tree in the ear. Yeah, a tall tree in the ear is Rilke. It's yeah. also the tree of knowledge. It's the tree yeah. as a symbol of creation, of growth, of the human form. So all of this there's a kind of symbolism behind it. But there's also not a symbolism that there's a tree, you're seeing it now. Exactly. And this is going to be the specific tree in my poem. I'm going to do something with it. So it sort of becomes a stand-in figure for is it a specific tree? Right. Of course it's specific right. because it's the one he remembers. Right. And we all know what that means. We all have something remembered specific exactly. to me. Part of what I'm going to try to do is to explain to you what that tree meant to me. And I'm not going to explain to you what that tree was. Right. So actually, uh, it stood on this corner in this, or in that forest or in this garden or under something. That's not so relevant. But say, that tree was so meaningful to me. Exactly. So he teaches us that certain things become very relevant on a human level because they're so specific to one person. Because we invest things with meaning rather than they have a meaning because it's stood on that corner, stood in that village. I mean, that, that's such a good example of what he glosses in, in the um, Tintern poem, yeah. where he, he talks about things that we, we both... It's a very long time. It's a very long Lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey. Um, it, gets, it gets shortened as... Tintern. And we're visiting the Banks of the Wide doing yeah. a tour July 13th, 1798, which I had to look up because everybody calls it Tintern, Tintern. Abbey. Tintern, yeah. <laughs> he had a lot of long titles. Um, and he has some notion there. He talks about things, both what we half perceive and half create. And that, that, right. that's, that's another aspect of, of thinking about um, how the mind works and how we make meaning for ourselves and also how it becomes shareable with others. But this part is very, Tindron Abbey is like as if someone is telling you something. What's weird about it, it's his mind and him revisiting a place he's been to five years ago. But when I reread all the poems, I thought someone is really trying to speak with someone else. They're actually strangely about himself and his own mind in this conversation, but as if he's trying to share and impart with you, which is unusual because there are lots of poets. I mean, Wallace Stevens, as you said, abstract, you're not quite sure if Wallace Stevens is speaking to you or not. Right. He's speaking to 
I don't quite know, but he, you know, he's also speaking to you. I mean, it makes me think, too, of the, the line of Yeats, you know, that poetry is the argument with oneself, whereas rhetoric is the argument with others. And, and I think a really interesting thing with Wordsworth is that often, and as you say, when he is speaking, as it were, impropria persona and, and, and saying things about, uh, that we take as, as autobiographical about his own experience, he will also do this thing where he will turn to somebody else. And so, for example, in the prelude, the long story, uh, well, it was also subtitled, The Growth of a Poet's Mind. So the idea, too, that autobiography isn't event, event, event. The titling wasn't so good. No. He, somehow he, is, he, is, he his... He uh, somehow a better marketer, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's, like, um, it's not... Uh, leaves of grass, it's not, it's <laughs> not bad. It's not bad. bad. Yeah, yeah, somehow. But he does, <laughs> he, you know, he's, he has all of these... Um, you know, tales and, and, and apostrophes to the clouds and to the breeze. Right. But, but then he will turn and he'll say, you know, thus I used to pour out my heart to you, O friend. And this poem is also known as the poem to Coleridge. Right. So he will turn in the middle of a passage and turn to Coleridge and address Coleridge directly. He also does so this in does shorter do poems. When that, when that happens in Boy, poem. do I think it, it, one thing it does is it super wakes you up as a reader and right. you realize right. that it, it also it also creates uh, an implicit drama, right? A drama of either a, a mobile mind. I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if I'm walking around, you I mean, you know, there's always that stream of whatever's going on in your head and right. whatever you're hearing. And and then you might you might think of a friend or you might think of a parent or a child and, and it sort of notes to them. And, and he builds that into the poem and he does this... He does this amazing thing in Tintern where you get all of his own feelings about returning to a place five years later and the, the change in his perception. Then he suddenly turns to his sister. And, right. you know, and, right. and you know, you, younger than I, are now in the first flush of all of your feelings. And so you are to me a second self, he says, you know, um, uh, carrying and experiencing what I did, you know, at an earlier point of my life. And there's a very, it's a very interesting move. He, he does a similar thing in lyrical ballads where he will uh, include conversation. The poem, part of the matter of the poem is staged as a conversation with an old huntsman or an old man going to the seashore. Or, so I think the fact, the, the, the poems as social encounters right. often drops out in accounts of Wordsworth. Often people think that he's a poet of nature, he's a poet of childhood, he's out there addressing trees and birds. Right, right, and it's like, that's not false, but he's also always out on the so-called public way. Right. He's always presenting himself as if, you know, as walking on various roads, meeting vagrants, meeting right. people of other right. class positions. Now, this doesn't mean he's, uh, you know, some radical Democrat proto-communist at all, but it does mean that he's interested in making poems out of complex social encounters. And one of the things I really like, or I feel like I've learned in thinking and reading, uh, thinking about and reading Wordsworth is that sense that inner and outer are permeable. It's not like there are poems of consciousness and poems of social encounter. They are in the same space for Wordsworth. And I think too often that gets amputated in our senses of literature and of poetry. I remember reading the first lines of Tintern Abbey in a class with Jeffrey Hartman actually which is a nice way to remember him by. And I, oh, I showed so you, I have all those little yeah. notes there. And so the first few lines, which, and he taught me something there about poetry, what you just said, it opens up something with other people. It also opens up time. So the first lines are five years have passed, 
five summers with a length of five long winters. And Hartman said, look, it's five years have passed. We know that means five summers and five winters, but the line opens up space and time for us. By saying five years have passed, five summers with the length of five long winters opens up the space of five long winters as if we're now entering into time opening up. And Hartman said, this is what the poem can do. It opens up time. And it's not looking back at this lost moment. He said, five years have passed. And then he says, five summers with a length of five long winters. Obviously. But there's nothing obvious that time can be opened up by us. And the subjectivity of our perception of time. I mean, the incredible weirdness of the opening. (laughs) The fact is, the the, the poem is always present. Five years have passed. Right now, five years have passed. When you were reading with Jeffrey Hartman, right then, five years. So the time of the poem is imminent, right? So we're just, we're plunged into it. Five years have passed with, you know, five summers with a length of five long winters. That is a weird way that the poem keeps going. And then he says, and again, I hear. And you're sort of thinking, wait. Where are we now? Exactly. Five years have passed from when? Again, something happening, I hear, in the yeah, present. Right now. So he's opening up. Exactly. And right. what you said, we don't live in the present all the time, actually. I think words with us in a good way. We're not melancholic and mournful for the past. But, of course, what we're doing right now also makes us recollect or it echoes certain things in the past. And that deepens it rather, yeah. than, rather than weakens it. There's a sense in which I was, my original question was, is there a loss because he doesn't have what his sister now has, this immediacy, the first time there, I the think, first exp- I think the poems acknowledge the loss. I think there is a, I think, I think the poems are partly feeling out the loss and also feeling out, you know, he's, he, he has a great, he's a great poet of adverbs. And so you get a lot of the yet and the still. <laughs> and it's like, you know, what remains to me yet, even though those first glorious, you know, unconscious attunements with nature and with pleasure have fallen away. What remains to me yet? And, and so I think that he, I think that he, the poems hold the complexity. There's also part where he's just said unconscious attunements. I thought, well, that's a lot of syllables. Sorry. No, in a good way. And I thought, but a lot of it is also him recollecting all these terrible things he did, all these it's lawless true. things. It's and true. he sort of went kind of wild. He was kind of a wild kid. And there's something about the kind of violence or this kind of ruthlessness he had. So in some ways, he wasn't just attuned with nature, looking at how beautiful everything. He was very much of a boy's boy. Oh, yeah, and and that's the whole thing about the the kind of... um, you know, going hunting, stealing and raiding the, bone, the nests, raiding nests, nests um, and like birds, and he sort of yeah. cheats basically in right. other people's traps, and then he steals a boat, and then he goes nutting and he ravages this tree right. for no reason. Right. He said, "I had enough nuts for the last lifetime, and I right. kept on just going." So there's a kind of weird openings to nature where he says it could also become really uncontrollable. Yes. So ecstatic doesn't just mean he's a nature power the way no. he walks along the curated landscape. No, this isn't like new age. No. This isn't a kind of... This isn't a walking tour of the Lake no, District. No, this is not. And, and, yeah. and that wildness gets yeah. lost, I think, in Wordsworth. No, he gets, he gets pacified. I mean, he partly self-pacified, but he gets pacified in reception. And it'll be, you know, like nice little pastoral scenes with birds. And actually he has, you know, figurations of, you know, uh, violating plants, like super sexually violent images. Right. And he, he does want to think hard about, uh, you know, what now some people would call negative affect, right? He wants to right. think hard about d- desire and lawlessness. And yet, 
there's still a sense of possible harmonies with the cosmos that I think keeps it under control in a way for him. I don't think this is a poet who fully goes down the full root of the possible nihilism of desire mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I actually, I think that that was mm -hmm. held elsewhere in the blankness of possible mountain faces, the problems of divinity. You know, I don't think that he found that. Um, I mean, I think that's a, a kind of Satanism in that period they would have possibly call it. That was something that, say, Byron was much more alert to. I, I mean, there is a question of, is Wordsworth actually alert to the problem of evil? I mean, it's interesting that you say that, that he's not open to the nihilism of desire in both of your books, uh, the three books, the, this blue and then and the serial. Maybe you do, more you do talk, <laughs> no, you talk quite a bit of being on the edge of something. It's a very funny poem, actually, that I won't read right now. It's a very sexual poem. It's very funny, I think, and you're sort of on the edge, and you're like, I didn't know what was beyond it. So yeah, I was on the edge, but I didn't know what an orgasm right. was something. It's a very funny poem because you say, but the nihilism of desire would be not memorable. We wouldn't know it even. We'd fall into it, as it were, sort of. Right. We would drop into it, and we would be completely engulfed in this ecstatic experience, and we wouldn't come back out with a memory of it. It would be traumatic in psychoanalytic terms. Right. So we wouldn't know. So you're saying, yeah, I'm on the edge, but I don't even know. I'm just going to say yes, because probably, but if I were on the edge, I would no longer be on the edge. I would have fallen in, right. which is actually what Wordsworth, what you're saying, he's, he probably doesn't have that, but it's there. As a, it's definitely there. Because nature yeah. is also not a tamed or bene benevolent. It's actually not what we want it to be, which is this great life-giving force. He writes really interestingly about fear, too, and being afraid. And, and, and he has a sense of the sublime as something that is about uh, forces which annihilate our minds, too. And I think he, he's really good on that, you know. And so it's not all about uh, cheerful consciousness at all. <laughs> There's a, pa there's a passage, um, a stanza in, in, in your book, This Blue, which I, I heard something in Wordsworth in there. You say, what I'm looking for is a golden bowl, carefully repaired, a complete world sealed along cracked lines. And there's something because in um, the prelude, he says, our mind are nourished and invisibly repaired by this possibility of recollecting these intense feelings or emotions and tranquility and sort of when you said I'm looking for a golden bowl a complete world sealed along cracked lines that the world is not perfect whole but you wanted to you want to have it whole along cracked lines knowing that there are gaps ruptures blanks etc but but knowing that would actually be a kind of solace or something and for Wordsworth too he says we I you know our minds are nourished and invisibly repaired he has, a, a, I think, a, a much greater faith in this invisible reparation. I think that if elements of that appear in my work, it appears in the optative mode. It's something one is looking for. I'm giving you the stanza in the middle of a poem, so yeah. oh, <laughs> there's another no, one after that. It's about a thing one might look for and hope for, but one does not assume. Whereas right. there's a lot of, especially in, in middle and older Wordsworth, where he asserts what, in fact, is in, in question. You know, so, so I, I mean, so the hymns to the... To the, to the healed mind, it's like maybe yes, maybe no. You know, I, I, on that, I'm agnostic. You know, what I find uh, in a way really moving about Wordsworth is the really serious effort to grapple with it, to, the really serious effort to grapple with 
broken minds mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. broken bonds, mm -hmm. failed hopes. So I like him when he's more in his struggling modality than when he's in his affirmative modality. I'm going to be happier with people who can tolerate negation and negativity right, than that. Right. And, uh, but I do think there's something really just powerful and moving about how he really did try to encompass the kind of fault lines in ourselves and the fault lines between people and between what one might hope and what the world makes possible. That, that is often something he's specifically addressing in the poetry. Now, does he prematurely rush in to have things be repaired or healable? Uh, does he later on in his life write odes to duty? Does he, yes, he does, you know. I mean, he can be a real, he can be a real downer, you know, <laughs> which, which. But maybe, which, but maybe it yeah. comes out of the awareness that it isn't given. In yeah. some ways, to say when you're saying some of it, he he wants it, he wants to believe in the repairability. Yes, um, we all do. Of course, I think we all do. Yeah. Is he taking a shortcut? Probably not. And this yeah. is actually, I think, what you just said. There are well, false I hopes. The that. question is, yeah. is there? It would be probably insincere or ring kind of untrue or inauthentic if it was a shortcut. But he's doing the work yeah. to say, well, how would we get there? Yeah. So I think this is the, the, what is actually moving about Wordsworth. He takes it seriously, and if he took a shortcut somewhere and say, oh, and then I, you know, I could gather myself and look at my memory, and now I'm in the present, and right. this is all. He said, no, there are fault lines, and what I'm trying to do is really be very attentive to these fault lines. And it's, I think also how I hear your question is sort of saying, do they make us deeper? Do they make us better? They're just what we experience. It's not yeah. totally given. It's sort of a Blakean question. Does experience make us right. more profound than innocence? I don't know. Right. You know? Right. So I don't think he gives you that answer, that the fault lines, the cracks in the wall are something we want to really forget and gloss over. Or, oh, I don't think he does at all. No, but right. can't, first of all, we can't. Yeah, I mean, that all the poems open up. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that, that is you know, the material of a lot of the work, particularly in the prelude. Um, yeah, I mean, we're pivoting among a bunch of different, different areas, but yeah. But it seems to be this is a central concern of his other poems, as you said, where he maybe, um, and I wouldn't call them shortcuts, where he maybe he's trying to do something else. He really wanted to write, or he had this whole plan of writing, um, you know, the great philosophic poem. He was going to write right. The Recluse. And, um, and it's interesting because he never quite delivered on The Recluse, and, and, and what he's most known for at this point probably are a number of the shorter poems that are astonishing and lodge in your ear and these strange Lucy poems, these sort of supernatural poems. And then some of the lyrical ballads, some of which showed up in um, uh, school books and school rooms. And then uh, the prelude as this very long autobiographical epic. And uh, as he, one of the, the antechamber to the recluse was this poem uh, he published in 1814 called The Excursion, and it famously got this review that began, this will never do. This will never do. And, you know, so that's what one of his contemporaries yeah, said. Yeah, that's what Francis Jeffrey, this kind <laughs> oh, okay. of fabulously cranky. Uh, this will never do. Yeah, this will okay. never do. So, um, Who is named, let's just say that we do not remember, but we do remember Wordsworth. Name. Yes. <laughs> just sort of for some poetic justice that actually this reviewer, what was his name, who said this will never do, is yeah, exactly. largely forgotten yeah. outside of academia. Yeah. But it is, a, it is a good line, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. not, maybe it's, it's a good line, yes. So, um, 
And what was the what, what did he see as a problem with that with that poem? I think you know he and many others they thought it was ponderous and labored and didn't take wing, and that things got so burdened with what. Uh, with what Wordsworth wanted philosophically to deliver, that, uh, you know, that that part of him that was didactic uh, started displacing, you know, other slightly brightening elements, you know. Um, so, so I think that, you know, they just, um, what, one of the things that's kind of fascinating about Wordsworth, too, is how much he courted the ludicrous. You know, he was willing to, he was, you know, and, and a lot of, you know, because he wrote these, poems and lyrical ballads upon like say for example the idiot boy or uh you know these various poems and other critics of his milieu and class were saying this is actually idiotic and it's a form of slumming and why are you writing about you know these sort of low customers it's it's you know it's a it's it's, it's a completely bogus move this is not their diction but it's yeah, my right. and and so it, it's very interesting. He activated um, other people's resistance because he wanted to have these poems of social cross-class social encounter, yeah. and he also his whole theory of poetic diction and that there should be a common language. Coleridge later on took him to task and said, "Look, Wordsworth is best when he's writing in his own voice. We don't want to hear Wordsworth. You know, all of his, you know, all of his claims about writing." in the selection of the language of rustics, i.e., uh, you know, peasants or farm laborers, working class people. This is a really weird thing that um, Coleridge says. This is a really odd theory that, in fact, is inaccurate to Wordsworth's own practice. And, you know, who cares about rustic language? Let's just do it in Wordsworth. You know, so so it, he, he raised a lot of um, hackles. Yeah. in both some of his poems, and it, it, and then he became, of course, this Victorian monument, and he, he was endlessly editing his own works, right. uh, you know. Um, he took a government position as the um, distributor of stamps in Wexmoreland. He's like the Goethe of England, who takes a government position, yeah. who endlessly edits yeah. his works, and who raised a lot of hackles with different things, okay. <laughs> and at the same time, <laughs> Is assigned and if and if, if sort of yeah, if poor school children are afflicted with reading it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> What's um, today when you hear that kind of um, English though? It's still it's incredibly um, accessible, and so he did something to the English language that actually um, opened it up probably in a way that high poetry could yeah. speak in this way. I mean, I'm thinking of you know. So uh, one of the lyrics, I wandered lonely as a cloud. Right. Um, and, and now that's not a thing you're probably going to hear, you know, walking down the Bowery. But that is, he has a number of poems where uh, it's not like you feel like you're teaching in translation, where often right. um, things from 1800 can feel like you are right. teaching. And of course, you are teaching in different kinds of cultural translation. But, um, but... The fact, I mean, the fact that he got taken up in schooling, and, and there, it's interesting to think of other, other poets in the period who were writing in this middle register of standard English. And so, he, you know, he's not the only one but at all, but if you think uh, uh, the, the great poem by Thomas Gray, the, um, uh, the ode, um, the churchyard, yeah, the elegy in a, in a country churchyard, 
um, and it begins, the curfew tolls the knell of parting day. Now, that's probably a pretty esoteric line for us. We don't have a curfew bell tolling the knell of parting day. Um, but it goes on in what for the period was a fairly uh, general accessible uh, zone of a newly standardized English. He wasn't saying, he wasn't, some of his other poems were much more um, ornate with a much uh, more elaborate diction and they would have personifications marching along and they would, they would seem instantaneously hyper-literary and dated. Okay. And so some of words were still hits, uh, some of Whitman can still hit uh, a bandwidth of English even though it, it'll, it'll, it'll still seem a little, right. you know, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but the idea that one would write out of a potentially common idiom, that, I mean, you know, you could argue that people have been, uh, people are writing Wordsworth all their lives and not knowing it, right? That, that, right. you know, it's theoretically, it's if not, right. you know, and, and uh, you know, there's a strong argument to be made, a counter argument, which is the kind of false tyranny of accessibility. It's like, so why, why, why should poetry be written in common it's language? False tyranny of accessibility. Yeah, it's like, so it's like just a, you know. Because accessibility also means a different, a certain kind of value or standard, and yeah. it sort of imposes that on. I mean, you know, you know, some some people. I mean, some people might want some people might want a poetry that is filled with, you know, weirdness and surreality and strange sonic effects, and 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 so somebody like Wallace Stevens uh, can right. be filled with all this jingle jangle. Right? It's like, what is he saying? Right. Um, whereas, if you know, a lot of a lot of U.S. poetry is written in a kind of uh, shared language as the realist novel. I also think it's interesting when you said the false tyranny of accessibility. That maybe a political concern, yes. sociological concern. There's another issue when Wordsworth talks about having very deep experiences and then trying to assess what the meaning of those experiences is later because they don't have an inherent meaning in some ways. Sometimes actually the reflection upon them allows him to say, what was the meaning of this to me? It's not the meaning came sort of, it came ready-made with its meaning. Right. It's sort it's of dynamic. It's yeah, created. dynamic. And it's by looking at five years ago, I was this person, now I'm that person. That is actually part of what the meaning is. It isn't just the meaning was there, now I can right. grab it. That maybe I don't want a very deeply felt experience to be <laughs> rendered into, because maybe that's not how I experienced it. Maybe right. it was actually very particular and special. This is why I, when I go back to the poem I opened with, when you say, but now she's happy, incredulous in love. You don't want to translate this incredulity into accessible language that I can share with you. Because part of it is, it's not totally available to us. Right. So if poetry gives you the illusion, oh, it all can be rendered into language and anybody can share, that that's not what that experience was. So there's a certain sanctity to experience or a certain preciousness or trauma, whatever word you want to use. If it's always translatable into what everybody can understand, that's maybe not capturing that then. I mean, that, that's, again, I think of, is it Wallace Stevens who says, the poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully? <laughs> and, and, and then, but there is something, um, I think the poet Susan Howe has talked about um, poems coming out of a silence, you know, and, and, or poetry coming out of a silence. And that sense of the kind of sanctity of the uncommunicable is, I actually think Wordsworth, he talks about under-presences, and for all of his really elaborate discursive dilation on all kinds of things, 
there, I think there is a sense of um, the irreducible <laughs> um, that, that, and we all might have an experience of the irreducible, but we might not be able to fully communicate. We can index it, but we can't communicate it. Um, and I do think uh, I have a, you know, clearly I, I have been a reader of, of Wordsworth in different keys for 25, 20, more than 25 years. And, and so, and it's interesting to reread Wordsworth, you know, and it's like, you know, 25 years have passed, 25 summers with a length of 25 winters. Um, but there's a sense too that, uh, I mean, I have a, a kind of profound and ramifying ambivalence about Wordsworth. I feel like, I mean, you know, and, and in a way, why not? I, I feel that way about a lot of poets who have mattered a lot to me. I can be both repelled. Yeah, it's called my poets, and it doesn't seem to be an ambivalent phrase. Ambivalent phrase zone. The other yeah, ones, exactly. you mean the other ones get sublimated into yeah. pleasure or yeah, pleasure you know, or yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, Wordsworth is sort of. There's a lot of super ego, what I would call in a kind of post psychoanalysis yeah. there's a lot of super ego in Wordsworth and there's not a lot of it, it seems, you know, and I mean, if you want to talk about the ratios and, and, uh, and, and again, it's not an accident that, that Keats diagnosed Wordsworth as, as sort of one afflicted with the egotistical sublime. Because I read it first also, I don't know, 30 years ago, a long time ago, and I felt it was giving me hope that actually getting older is not such a despairing thing. <laughs> that actually I thought, well, you know, you used to be so alive. And then, of course, we also know when you're young, you don't even know you're alive. All of that cliche. <laughs> but I actually thought there was something kind of, and it didn't seem fake. It didn't seem he's selling me a bill of goods and oh, saying, oh, right. age and maturity and knowledge will give you abundant recompense. He actually thought, no, actually, there's something else. You actually know the scope of experience. And it doesn't take, it, it, it changes, it's not the same. It's different and in, in, in it could be good in a different way. So I actually thought there was something kind of That's hopeful really that I, my ambivalence, I was kind of heartened by it yeah. and thought, and it's interesting when I reread Hartman, so the unremarkable words were the first book and then Bloom, and Bloom calls him a canonical poet, canonical memory huh. in, a, in a chaotic age. We have no more orientations. And he says, but he gives us what we can remember. He is our... Hermes, he's our guide to what we can remember. He said he establishes memory as a key in, a, in an age where there's no guidance. A really interesting kind of argument. Huh. And Bloom says, I misread Wordsworth when I was young, which Bloom says all the time yeah, because Bloom has been getting, you know. And yeah. so it's, but in some ways, I felt there was something heartening to say, oh, you getting older is not so terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I actually think this points to something, too, that, um, that Wordsworth's writing is part of a kind of broader, what we might call a wisdom tradition. You know, I actually think it's part of a, of a broader tradition, and one can feel um, uh, coerced by that at times, and one can also feel heartened by it. And I, and I do think that he is a really tremendous poet of earned complexity. I do not think, at his best, I do not think he gives you, you know, shortcut consolations. I don't think, you know, and... and and I find that um, very admirable and also uh, a kind of complex solace, right. you know, and, right. and part of it, too, is, well, it used to be uncontroversial that people went to poetry, uh, you know, in Horatian terms, you know, to be delighted or instructed. And, right. um, and a lot of times 
you know, if, if as Keats said about Milton, we resist those things that have a palpable design on us. You know, if we feel we're being hectored, right? It's like, oh no, but it's, you know, it's fine. You have the philosophic mind now that you're an adult and you know how, you have proportion and you, you know how to place these experiences. Um, so that can feel like um, a kind of disciplinary, a right. disciplinary uh, uh, move. And, and other times it can be companionable. It can be, it can feel like, and so I often feel, I'm always just surprised when I reread words because I have different reactions. Sometimes I feel, oh my God, now we're going to have another hymn to the wind, right? After we got to a very difficult moment in right. something about, you know, the mother's death or, you know, uh, uh, a farmer displaced from his land. And, the, and, and you can feel like there is something, um, he's going to make a kind of Wordsworthian move that's going to be annoying. And on the other hand, so I feel, no, this is really, um, uh, there is a kind of profundity here that is earned and, uh, and can be companionable. So really it depends on, you know, th my own mood. I mean, he, he had, he had a book, uh, he called a book of his, which is hysterical, Moods of My Own Mind, I think, uh, which I think is really, really funny. And, and also the, uh, but also the, the, the seriousness of this, taking moods seriously, right, right? As, a, as a kind of fabulous, romantic, psychological, philosophical commitment. So I think he, he's interesting in that key as well. But I like it as a kind of companion, yeah. that there's a kind of, there can be an ambivalence, but you yeah. say he's going through it with you. Yeah. It's a nice way. Okay. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. I, I be, I, I'm going to look for the, the hymn to the wind now after this. <laughs> so I really want to thank you for, um, for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. I hope, to have, I hope to have you back on for another one of your poets. Oh, that's... <laughs> well, you got a, a, a lot of little windows into, okay, into some great. of them, but thank okay. you. Thank you very okay. much. Thank you very much.